0: Well, I'd like to start my sermon this morning uh, by all of us going back to high school math class. Uh, For some of you, this will be scarier than a haunted house. Uh, For others, it'll be enjoyable. Uh, For me, it's very enjoyable. I enjoyed math when I was a kid. And you remember in math class, all those lovely equations we got to learn in high school. Like the right angle triangles, we learned the Pythagorean theory, C squared equals A squared plus B squared, very good, very good. Or if you want to find the slope of a line, that's y equals mx plus b. Or think about the areas, of the areas and all the equations to find an area. I had to help uh, Dayton with some of his homework this year, and he was doing geometry. The area of a triangle is half times the base times the height, alright? So if you want to find the area of a triangle, it's half base times height. The square is an easy one. That's base times what? Height, that's very easy. The square, the rectangle, just take the two sides. The circle, for us overachievers in the room, the area of a circle is something times radius squared. Pi, very good. Can someone rattle off pi now? Very good, very good. See, we're an astute church here. But really, what you learn about math is that other people have done all the hard work. Really when you think about math and you think about high school math, you're not asked to figure out how to find the area of a triangle. Someone has probably spent like their entire lifetime looking at triangles and trying to find how you can do that and you learn in one class period what took some mathematician his whole life. Or you learn in science class the law of gravity and how to calculate how fast the apple is falling from the tree when it took Einstein probably 30 years to figure that out. When you think about math and science, we're really standing on the shoulders of other people's uh, uh, academic success. All right? I did not come up with any equation. And even in my generation, they used to give us little note cards, and we could write all the equations that we could fit on one note card. So you didn't even have to memorize the equations. All you had to be able to do was the algebra to figure or to solve the equation and plug in the right numbers. Well, folks, not to burst your bubble, but that's really how Christianity works. Uh, we're not asking you to do any work today to save yourself. We're not asking for you to, f- uh, to figure out or to solve or to somehow philosophically figure out how to have a good standing with God. No, really, you only have to stand on one person's work in order to understand salvation, and that is the work of God. Uh, religion or Christianity is very similar to mathematics. God has done all the work. God sent his son to live a life you couldn't, to die a death you deserved, so that God could offer you forgiveness and mercy and grace. And you don't have to do anything other today, other than this. You have to understand what God has done for you. You have to understand the good news of God. His son came, the life he lived, the death he gave, the sacrifice he made. And then you have to be willing to accept that. You have to be willing to change your relationship with two things today. You have to change your relationship with sin. You have to say, it's no longer about gratifying myself. It's no longer about living for myself. I am turning away from my worldly way, and I am turning to God's way. And I understand that if I'm willing to turn from the world, and I'm willing to turn to God, then the work that Jesus did saves me. Isn't that amazing? It's like finding the area of a circle, All right, Pi times radius squared. You did not know that when you were a ninth grader. You were introduced to that equation, you trusted it, you plugged your little numbers in, and you got the answer. Folks, today, I'm not asking you to rewrite the good news of God. It's been written by God Himself. He knew that humanity could never save itself, and that ultimately, He would have to save us. And He did that by sending His Son. And then, the same way you have a math teacher that taught you all these equations, God has given another helper for us. We call it the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, whether you know this or not, works in your life before your conversion, at your conversion, and after your conversion. That, the whole job of the Holy Spirit is to take everything God has done for you, and to teach it to you, to apply it to you, and then to use it to radically transform you. Really, what Christianity is, it's the Holy Spirit applying the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. If you really want to boil it down, it's the Holy Spirit coming into your life saying, Jesus died for you. Jesus is worthy to be your Lord. Jesus is a good Savior. Jesus is a wise shepherd. And he introduces you to it. Then you accept it and he applies it to your life. He washes you clean. He regenerates your heart. You're born again. He transfers you from this slave master to this slave master. From this husband to that husband. He redeems you from this law twisted manipulation that you thought you were going to save yourself. He does all of that. And you know how you come out on the other end? You come out as a child of God. Because all you did was apply the work that God did for you to your life. Folks, we're going to see that today in Romans chapter 8. We've been studying Romans. Romans 1, we're all worthy of death. Romans 2, works and law will not save you, neither will uh, religious ritual. Romans 3, you're saved by faith alone because God gave his son to to be the justifier and the just God. Romans 4, Abraham is our example. He wasn't saved by works or circumcision. He wasn't saved by uh, religious ritual. He was saved by faith alone. Romans 5, good news. Those who are saved by faith, you no longer have sin and death as your master. Your new master is who? Grace and righteousness. Grace and righteousness. That was Romans 5 and 6. Then Romans 7, well, what about the law? And Pastor Calvin and I tag-teamed it. We learned that God tried to give humanity a good and perfect and holy tool. This tool was supposed to save us from ourselves and sanctify us to be godly. And rather than taking God's tool and being able to use it for good... Our old wretched flesh found a way to manipulate it. Rather than being a guide to avoid sin, it became a catalog to order sin. We found opportunity in the law to explore areas we never knew existed. And then Pastor Calvin showed us last week that there's this huge void between desiring to please God and actually pleasing God. And this huge void right here between I want to be right with God and I am right with God can never be, can never be solved through the law. Because your sinfulness will always use the law to gratify yourself. It's a really wicked picture of humanity. But if you have children, you know that when the minute you give them rules is the minute you've introduced them on what not to do, and they do it, amen? Now just multiply that out by humanity over the years. Then we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8. We've talked about sin, we've talked about the law, we've talked about death, and now Paul is going to introduce the Holy Spirit. Paul's going to introduce the Holy Spirit as the answer to this question, or to expand upon this Pastor Calvin ended Romans 7 by reading this. He said in Romans chapter 7, Paul yells out, we think, What a wretched man I am! I've taken the law and fed myself. What wretchedness I have! Who will rescue me from this sinful wretchedness? And verse 25 of chapter 7 he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But he doesn't expand on why he thanked God. But when you get to Romans 8 you understand that he thanks God in that moment because it is God who saved him as a wretched man. And for some of you in this room, you are a wretched woman or man today, and you're going to have the good news, you're going to have the wonderful opportunity of hearing this, that you don't have to leave as a wretched sinner. You can leave as an accepted son or daughter of God if you will apply the good news of Jesus Christ to your life. If I do my job well, you'll see in italic size on your bulletin, I'm going to show you that the Spirit's application of Jesus' accomplishments results in Spirit-filled believers that are freed from the flesh. We're going to take that statement, we're going to break it down in three different points. You're going to see that every one of my points, ultimately, is explaining that statement. Also notice on your bulletin, all of the bold words on your bulletin come straight from the Bible. I realized this week I've never explained that. The reason I bold these words is so that you understand that these phrases are directly out of the Bible. That's why we opened our Bible. That's why I want to point you back to the Bible. For it is the wisdom of God. It's His equation about life that's going to solve your future. Let's jump into our first point today. We are set free by the Spirit's application of God's accomplishments. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 8. He says, Therefore... There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I've already talked about the therefore. I've given you the background of Romans. We'll continue on here. But the word I want to point to is the word N-O-W. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason he has to say now is because before you were in Christ Jesus, there was condemnation. Before you gave your life to Jesus, before you accepted the work that God did for you, you had condemnation. You were separated away from him. You were estranged to God. You were under his judgment. And ultimately, folks, you would have been delivered over to damnation. But he says now, and the reason he can say now is because we've had a change of status. We've had a change of our ontological status before God. We are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ Jesus means to accept what he's did for you. And when you accept what he did for you, there is now no condemnation. So if you're a believer in this room, what better news to hear, amen? Every rule we've broken, all the disrespect we've done, all the rebellion that we've encouraged, that's all have been forgiven. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. It is your union with Jesus that leads to this. Remember, We were crucified with Him. We died with Him. We were buried with Him. We were raised with Him. We will live with Him. It is that union together that makes you have no condemnation. This has a twin statement. Not, um, not identical twins. This is a fraternal twin statement. Go to Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1. I think Romans 5 through Romans 8 is one section. Look how he started off Romans 5.1. He said to us, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, that's just a fancy way of saying accepting what God's done for us, we have peace with God. So in Romans 5.1, we got the positive side of the coin. When you accept Jesus, you now have peace with God. Romans 5.8, very similar statement, just from the negative perspective. Rather than having peace with God, you could say it this way, I now have no condemnation before him. Isn't that a beautiful twin statement there? Five one, you have peace with God in Christ. Romans eight, one, I have no condemnation. They're fraternal twin statements, if I could coin that theological term today. It's a rhetorical device that Paul is doing to say, look how much better this has got. Not only do you have peace with him, not only are you accepted by him, guess what? You have no condemnation ahead of you. Well, how has that happened, pastor? Well, look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 is where I'm starting to get this application. Because the law of the Spirit of the life in Jesus Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Well, there's a lot of theological uh, verbiage in this. When you see the law of the Spirit, you could put in parentheses the authority of the Spirit. Because the authority of God's Spirit, and what does the Spirit of God's authority bring? He brings life. You see that of life? The Spirit of life. The Spirit that gives life. The life-giving Spirit. The authority of the life-giving spirit that you got in Jesus has what? Has set you free. And free indeed I am. I have been set free from the authority or the principle or the sway of sin and death. What a beautiful picture. We saw this already. Remember the slave imagery? Your ownership has been transferred from the, the master of sin and death to the master of what? Jesus Christ, grace and righteousness. You had an old husband, you died to that husband so you could marry a new husband. You're no longer in this realm, you're in this realm. And what Paul is saying here is, who accomplished, who applied this into your life? Who was the force that released you from sin and death? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the life-giving Spirit of God, came into your life, and it broke the chains of sin and death, And it walked you to your new master of grace and righteousness. Isn't that a wonderful picture? How do you get saved? The Holy Spirit brings life into your dead life. Listen, I was dead. I was dead as a a tree that had been cut down for 20 years. This dead old tree up here was not going to have new birth. I wasn't going to grow a new tree. There was nothing inside of me that was going to provide new life. My new life as a Christian did not come from me, it didn't come from this church, it didn't come from my grandmother, it came from one person, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought life into my life. In John 3, He was reborn. Remember what He says in John 3, Jesus? The Holy Spirit is like the wind, it blows here and there on its own accord. It affects things, and the Holy Spirit has come into my life, and He has set me free from my old sinful ways, and He has brought life in Jesus Christ. Some of you say, well, why did this have to happen? Verse 3, for the law could not do it. The law of God could not give you life. The law of God could not save you. The law of God could not sanctify you. The law could not do it. Now, don't you go blaming the laws, what Paul will say. He tells you once again, as Pastor Calvin wisely preached last week, it's not the law to blame. The law is not the one who caused it to fail. You know who caused it to fail? People just like you and I. It was the weakened by the flesh of humanity. See, the law is good and holy and pleasing. It's just the wretched sinners that are reading it and trying to obey it. If I tell my kids, don't lie, treat your parents with respect... Don't back talk and make sure you're in your bed by 10 o'clock. The law is good. Those rules are good. Amen, parents? Some are saying, 10, make it 6 p.m. Maybe. All right, the law is good. What makes the law ineffective or impotent or not powerful in their little lives is their own wretchedness. The reason they're struggling at school because they're falling asleep is not because of my law. My law has them in bed with plenty of time. The reason they're falling asleep at school is they're not obeying the law because their wretchedness think that they want to listen to their Amazon Echo all night. Not being too specific. It's not the law. It's the people who have the law. And I'm not pointing fingers just at children, adults in here. When God says, don't commit adultery, don't look at a woman, don't lie, don't be greedful, don't build barns you think you're going to have forever, but give your kingdom treasures to the kingdom so we can grow and go and get all the Gentiles to faith. That's a good law, amen? What makes it impotent is not the law, it's us who follow it. Jesus wisely said that. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lets us know, really the law was a good mediation The law said don't commit adultery. If you really want to know God's holiness, it's don't even look at a woman. God gave us half the rule and we couldn't even obey it. And then one of my favorite parts in this sermon, it's all been kind of negative so far, but we get to this good point right here in Romans 8, 3 at the end. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, and then look at those next two words, and by golly, our eternity is radically changed by these two. God did. You want to know the shortest answer of Christianity? Everything you couldn't do, God did. God did. And then he goes on to tell us four things that God did that may we never take for granted. The first one is this. It says later on in those verses, we'll just read it. God did, he condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. In order that the law requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The first thing I read in that is God sent his son. The first thing God did when it came to our salvation and our sanctification, when I use the word sanctification, just think, how do you make a wretched person into a God-honoring person? I am saved immediately. God accepts me in my wretchedness. He does not want to let me stay in my wretchedness. He wants me to progress to maturity. And how did God save and sanctify me? The first thing it is, he sent his son. And I preached this about three or four weeks ago. Even as the rebellion of humanity increased, God's grace increased more. God's graciousness to send Jesus wasn't even discouraged by 2,000 years of mockery. God's grace ran deeper than human sinfulness. God sent his son out of grace. The second thing he did is he sent his son in sinful flesh. Notice that word in your Bible, likeness. There's more written on this word than anyone wants to read in one week. Paul has a struggle here. He wants to say that Jesus was sent in the flesh. He wants to say that. But we know from Romans that when he talks about the flesh, the flesh is something that is completely dedicated to worldliness. When he says your flesh, he's talking about your obsession and your prioritization of the world. Now let me ask you, did Jesus come with a mentality of being obsessed and prioritized to the world? No. But at the same time, if we say, well, we're not going to say Jesus came as a human or in the flesh. Well, now we're into a bigger problem because he did come. Jesus had to be a man. He had to be the perfect Israelite. And we know that Jesus was born of the flesh. He was born of a woman under the law. So on one side, he was born as a human. And on the other side, but not a human that ever sinned. Do you see the tension there? You can't deny the reality that Jesus came, or you're really in a pickle. And you can't say that Jesus ever sinned. But we know that every human goes on to sin. You see the problem here. This is what I should do as I read my books all week. You see the problem. So Paul inserts a word here. Likeness. Likeness. Jesus came and he took on flesh in the likeness of it. Yes, he was fully human, but he did not have a sinful nature. Now, I don't need to get into all the how did this God accomplish this. I can just accept the fact this is what God did, and this is how God says it. Jesus came fully as a human. He was fully human and fully God. And yet, he never what? Sinned. He sent Jesus in the likeness of our flesh. And then get this, guys. Even though he never sinned, the Bible says he sent him as a sin offering. He says that right there in those verses. He sent him as a sin offering. says that right there in verse 3. In the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. This is the same Greek word used in Leviticus and Numbers in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the offering that was given in Leviticus and heat Numbers for, for, uh, for unplanned sin or for unknown sin. This is the offering that they would give God in order for God to then grant them forgiveness. And he did, God did that because he wanted to see that something had to be given, something had to be sacrificed, life had to be uh, killed, there had to be the shedding of blood, there had to be a substitute, in order for God to grant. It had to be just and the justifier. But now we're not giving an animal. It says that he sent his son as a sin offering. Jesus is our sin offering. Jesus took on our wrath. Jesus took on our condemnation. Jesus was literally our sacrificial substitute on behalf of our sin. He sent his son in the likeness of flesh as a sin offering so that he could do the very beginning of verse four, three, four, 4, no 3, so he could condemn sin in the flesh here's what i want you to hear when you hear the word condemn god denounced it and god dealt with it or if you like different d words he declared our acts unrighteous and he delivered the necessary punishment upon jesus to condemn something is to denounce it that is wrong and that is bad and then it is to deal with it execution and that's what he did with jesus in the flesh The Father looked upon Jesus after Jesus took on all of our flesh, and he said this, condemned. He was condemned to death because he took on your sin and your sin and your sin and your sin. All of our rebellion was laid upon him. He wasn't condemned because he was sinless. But when he's on that cross as a sacrificial substitute for our sin, he is condemned on the cross. And God says that he denounces those acts, all of that sin, And then he delivers the necessary punishment. He pours his wrath out upon him. And when it's over, we can say this. God judicially denounced and dealt with sin once and for all. God accomplished the condemnation of sin on the cross. And today, if you will put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit applies that accomplishment to you. So that your condemnation was condemned at the cross. His death becomes your death. His sacrifice becomes your redemption. And without that application, folks, without applying what Jesus did on that cross, while it may be sufficient for you, it won't be effective. And you'll still be under condemnation, estranged from God, and heading towards eternal damnation. And then Paul says in verse 4, before I illustrate all this, he says in verse 4, God did this in order that the law's requirement would be filled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. One of the reasons Jesus died on that cross, folks, is so that God's people for the first time could obey God's moral law. I like this line by John Stott. He says, the flesh renders the law impotent. The Spirit empowers believers to actually obey it. When Jesus died on that cross for the first time, God's people have the advantage of getting indwelt with the Spirit... And for the first time, they can honor God the way God wants to be honored. A lot of times, you see, I'd like to teach you a, like an outreach tool here, and it's really easy to explain what Jesus had to do. And I use this. You'll also see a bridge, but I like this a little better because it's a vertical nature. But if you're at a, a restaurant or a friend at work and you need to explain the gospel based on these verses here, you can say this that in the beginning, all of us start as a sinner down here. By nature, we're sinners, by nature, we live according to the flesh. We weaken God's law. We take everything he tries to do for us and twist it for our own gratification. We all start down here in sin. And there's a barrier between us and God, and that is our sin. God cannot be in the presence of sin. God cannot overlook the fact that we've rebelled. He is a just God, and he must handle this. He can't look away. He can't ignore it. He has to do something. So we're separated from God. But then it says that God sent his son. He sent his son down in the flesh. So God sent his son to earth. And in the flesh, he lived a life I couldn't live. He lived a sinless life. And then he offered himself as a sin offering. He took my place. All right? And he did that. Notice the shape I've made there. Where did he take my place? He took my place on the the cross. And if I accept that he died for me on the cross and I accept what he accomplished, then for the first time, God and me can be in a relationship. And that's what it really means is that the spirit takes that good news and when you accept it and you believe it and you trust it this good news becomes your good news and by the cross of Jesus you span the gap between desiring and doing see on this side Pastor Calvin taught us we all may desire to please God but we can't get over this huge gap that we're stuck in but when the cross comes down through the gospel of Jesus desire now can actually turn into doing and for the first time God's people can honor him in a way he wants to. Not because of anything we've done, everything because God sent his son to here so we could believe in him and have a relationship. That's what Romans 1 through 4 is really saying is that the spirit applies what Jesus accomplished. The second one which won't take us as long is that we are set free from sinful gratification We've preached a lot on this. That's why I say it won't take as long. I want to look at these verses and point out where we come from. Paul says in verses 5 through 8, he says, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God. Indeed, it's unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul is doing here is he's comparing two different people not one person living two lifestyles He's comparing two different people One person lives according to the flesh. That's how we all start pre-jesus. We all lived according to the flesh The other person is one who lives according to the spirit Those are people who have placed their faith in jesus and have been born again So we have two separate people You don't need to read this passage and say. Oh, this is about me Some days I live according to the flesh and other days. I live according to the spirit. That's not what paul's doing here what Paul's doing here is he's showing you just how big a work God has done. He's taking you from a person of flesh to a person of the Spirit. And if you want to know just how much work that takes, the person of the flesh lives for worldly gratification, worldly obsession, to the detriment of God. Fleshly people are egocentric and sin-dominated. While spirit people are regenerated and obedient to God. Look with me in verse 5. Verse 5, I think, in verse 6. It says that they have their, fleshly people have their minds set on things of the flesh. They, they're committed to it. I put that in your bulletin. I think of a C word. Fleshly people are committed to worldly things. They wake up thinking about worldly things. They judge their life based on worldly things. They spend their time, their efforts, their money. When you are worldly, you are committed to worldly pursuits. You're preoccupied with it, your ambitions, your energy, and your time. God had to save us out of that. Our preoccupations had to go from ourselves to God. Our ambitions had to go from building our kingdom to his kingdom. And not only are fleshly people committed to themselves, they have a consequence they don't realize. Look what it says in verse 7. The minds of the flesh is hostile. Well, verse 6. But the minds of the spirit, man. Now the minds of the flesh is what, church? Is death. They're committed to a worldly pursuit that ultimately has a consequence Of eternal damnation listen I I hate to burst your bubble God cares about his own glory God does not like to be mocked and God will hold all of us accountable for every act of mocking we've done and because God is a just God and God cares about his own image and God cares about his own glory he has to hold people accountable so those who live their whole life in mockery of God their consequence will be eternal damnation and the third thing that worldly people are They're incapable of pleasing God. They're hostile to Him. They don't submit to Him. They cannot please Him. So just think about the description we see here of a a worldly person. They're committed to the world. They're going to allow the world to run them all the way into eternal damnation. That's their destination. And they're incapable of pleasing God or submitting to Him. If you've ever had to cook or buy food for a picky eater, I apologize. Cooking or, or buying food for a picky eater is one of the worst things one can suffer from in this world. When I was a kid, for some reason I thought every cooked onion was a poison pill. When I see my grandmother Doris in heaven, I owe her multiple apologies for my incorrect position. But because, now, now listen, if I even heard that there were onions in a dish, if I even heard it, I would decide in my mind, I will not eat of this. I, If you were to tell me, well, not every bite has an onion, I would say, yes, it does. If you put it in the casserole, it's affected the whole casserole, okay? If you put onions in my homemade chicken pot pie, now you've killed the whole chicken pot pie. And I was a picky eater. And for me, onions ruined the whole dish. And if you looked at me and said, well, Pastor Jacob, can't you just pull out the onions? Can't you just separate the onions? That was a hideous and torturous thing to ask a young man to do. What loving family member would ever ask their grandson to pull onions out of a dish? I share this illustration because we need to understand the description of a worldly person comes down to three words, total depravity and incapability. Now when you hear the word total depravity, it's a theological word throughout all the time. What it means is this, it means that all of your facilities are affected by sin. Everything you do, think, or feel is affected by a selfishness and a worldliness that you cannot control. Now, total depravity doesn't mean that all of us do the most wickedest sin all the time without ever stopping. No, the word total means that your depravity, your bent or your bias against God, affects everything you do. It just does. Just like an onion affects the whole dish, your, your self-centeredness affects everything you do when you're lost. It just saturates it. You cannot pull depravity out of a human And then still have a human. Unless you're God and you rebirth it. You cannot separate what it means to be a human before Jesus and depravity. We are all totally depraved. We are evil people, wretched people before God. And folks, we are incapable of pleasing Him. To the same extent it is to ask an eight-year-old to pull onions out of a casserole. It's like asking a sinner not to sin. We're not sinners because we sin, folks. We sin because we are what? Sinners. What you are, the word here is ontological status, what you are ultimately determines where you're going and what you do. So if I'm a worldly person, then what am I going to do? Worldly things. And where am I going to go? Worldly pursuits. If I'm a Christian, I'm born again and I have the Spirit in me. If I'm Spirit-filled, then I'm going to what? What am I going to do? Spirit-filled things. And where am I going to go? Spirit-filled motivations. So that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying you can't separate total depravity out of a human. Before Jesus, you are a wretched sinner that lives for yourself and no one else to the demise and detriment of God. But the good news today is some really smart guy figured out an equation. His name is God. He figured out the good news and the way to save you from that wretched state. That's all he's saying here. Because look who we become. And third, not only are we set free from flesh, we're set free for resurrection and sanctification. Notice in, verse, in, in the next verses 9 through 13, he talks about how we're indwelled with the Spirit. We've been saved from that fleshly thing, and now what who we get to be? Look at 9 and 10. You, church, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If, indeed, the Spirit lives in you. If anyone does have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong. He does not belong to God. Now, if Christ is in you, church, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Notice he starts off 9 and 10 with these these conditional statements. You want to know if you're a Christian? Does the Spirit dwell in you? Because that's the only thing different between a lost person and a saved person, is the Spirit dwells in them. Now, we know the Spirit does a lot of things justifies, sanctifies, glorifies. Please, I know that there's many depths to the work of the Spirit. But when you really boil it down, who you were before Jesus and who you are after, before you were a wretched sinner under the power of death and sin, after you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. God has moved into your life, and God is doing radical things in it. If the Spirit is in you, you are a Christian. This is also a universal promise, folks. You give your life to Jesus today, I can guarantee you the Spirit will move into your life. There is no, like, uh, hierarchy of Christianity where, like, well, the pastors have the Spirit seven days a week, the deacons get it four days a week, and the pew sitters get it Sunday 9 through 11. No. If you are born again in here, what then lives in you? The Spirit. You're not of the flesh, you're of the spirit. You know why that's good news for you folks? Because Dr. Lloyd-Jones said one time, he's a physician, a doctor that turned into a pastor. You know when you took your first breath, you actually started taking your last breath. Everyone's going to die in this room. Just preached a funeral last Monday and I said, no one outruns Father Time. It's amazing when you get to that line in the sermon, everyone goes, whoop. Everyone's going to have a funeral. I tell everyone when I preach a funeral, one day a guy like me is going to stand up here and have to talk about God at your service. No one outruns it, no one avoids it, no one dodges it. When you took your first breath, you started to take your last breath. Father time wins every time. Okay? Here's the good news, Christian. Your body may be dead, but look at verse 11. Or verse 10-11. Your body may be dead, but the Spirit gives life. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal body to life through the spirit. What we see here is what? We see that Jesus is the pattern and pledge. That if the spirit lives in you, while you may die one day physically, you will be resurrected and you will live eternally. Well, pastor, how do you know that? Because the grave's empty. Jesus was raised once and for all, never to die again. If the Spirit lives in me, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, then I know one day that my funeral is not a period at the end of my life, it is a comma, because there's more to be written about where I'm going. I'm going to be raised, folks. And I'm going to be raised not based on my righteousness, verse 10, but because of righteousness, the righteousness that God gave me. I'm not going to spend eternity with God because I'm such a great, perfect person. I'm going to spend eternity with God because the righteousness of Jesus has qualified me for His dwelling. The third point, point, I do got to get going here, is just obligation to the Spirit. Folks, I cannot emphasize this point more. Look at verses 12 and 13. You love the fact God lives in you. You love the fact that He's going to raise you from the dead. Well, verse 12 and 13, He says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. You keep living according to the flesh, we're just going to assume you never were saved to begin with. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Listen, not only does God want to give you eternal life, folks, He wants to give you a rich, abundant, satisfying life now. He really does. John seventeen three says, This is eternal life, that you may know the Father and the one whom He sent. Listen, I get eternal life now. I get to know God. I get to enjoy God. I get to hold a baby and see the, the, the fingerprints of the Creator all over it. I get to walk outside of Missouri, snow on Monday, 75 on Friday, and I get to praise God who does that. I get to enjoy God. I have eternal life right now. But here's the trick to experiencing eternal life to its fullest right now. Paul says you must put the deeds of the body to death. My friends, the Puritans, would say you need to mortify your flesh. You need to kill it. When Paul says you need to put to death the deeds of the body, he uses the same word used to kill someone or to execute someone judicially. I have three D D words you need to do today, folks. You need to discern what is evil, you need to denounce it, and you need to destroy it. Some of you in here like to pretend you don't have sin. Pastor, I don't have sin. That's the biggest lie. We all have sin. And the biggest trick Satan does to us is say, just pretend you don't have it. Don't worry about your attitudes. Don't worry about your words. Don't worry about what you do. Don't worry about it. You're saved. You've been justified by faith alone. Remember, it's, it, just let go and let who? Yeah, let go and let God. Folks, God will work for you, and God will work with you, but God never works despite us. God will work for us, I fully believe that. He, he, he blazes the trail before me, He works with us, He walks right beside me. But folks, when it comes to sanctification, God does not work despite you. You keep living in that sin, you're not just going to wake up one day and not have it anymore. I can just keep looking at the secretary. I can just keep looking at the pornography on the screen. I can keep watching those movies. God, take away my adulterous heart. God, you still haven't done it, day 34. Because God doesn't work despite us. This literally says, put to death. You know what I should do in my J2G group? I should what? I should announce the fact I'm strolling with lust. I should denounce it as despicable and horrible. And then I should destroy it with the help of my brothers. Amen? You know, our J2G groups were going on about two and a half years of doing them. One of our motives of doing it was confession of sin. I don't know if we're confessing sin anymore. I think a lot of our J2G is pretending we have sin. Here's the sins I always hear. I'm mean to my wife. Yeah, we've all been mean to our wife, folks. But let's uh, denounce it. Why is that? Because you shouldn't speak to a child of God that way. She's been made in the, the image of God, and you should respect her and love her and cherish her. And you know what? Why don't you destroy it for heaven's sakes? I'm tired here in the same sin for two and a half years. I don't think you're really confessing it. I think you're just babysitting it so you have something to say in this group. Folks, killing the flesh is not talking about it until we're blue in the face. Killing the flesh is saying no more, no more. I just think of my wife. There's no way I could go home to Jennifer and say, "Hey, I, I have this relationship out there," and her say. Well, as long as you just tell me about it and I monitor it, we're going to be okay. No, it would be off with my head. It's not funny, Calvin. And we all need to have it. Listen, we always talk about sexual sin this way, but what about our, our times and energy? Some of you spend your whole life trying to build the greatest pot of money and legacy that you can leave to your children, to the detriment of God. And all of us in this room know it. All of us in this room look around, and the sad thing is, your brothers and sisters say, if they love the Lord as much as they love XYZ, this church would be set on fire. And we're guilty of talking about it for 15 years as your pastors, rather than what? Identifying it, denouncing it, and destroying it from the body. All of us are guilty of this. We all should be pushing each other to godliness, rather than pretending it's not there, or pretending we don't have sin. Folks, the greatest tool God's given you in your spiritual walk is these people sitting around you right now. We need to kill the flesh so we can reach our, po- our potential in the spirit. I want to end with one last gospel presentation. It was on the screen earlier, if we'll flip to it. This is called Three Circles, and I'll just bring it home real quick. I, I shared one way to share the gospel. Here's a second way. Cal- or Adam's going to help me out here. Uh, this is called three circles, just like using the napkin, you can also use three circles. You can draw this at your restaurant, very easy to do, we use it with the children here. Three circles, top left, God created everything perfect and holy. Then we go over, you see that guy running, that's Adam and Eve, they broke everything in the garden. And the result is this world is broken, that's why you have all the squiggly lines, and you could label your lines, greed, lust, hate, anger, selfishness, all of us have brokenness, But the good thing, the bottom circle, is God sent his son in the likeness of flesh to be our sin offering so he could condemn sin in the flesh. And if you'll repent, see the guy on his knees, if you'll repent and turn from sin and turn to that good news, then God will restore you back to the design he had in your life. And the reason I wanted to end with this, see a lot of us get to that circle on the bottom. See that little crown, that's Jesus being Lord of your life. When Jesus is Lord, folks, there's no going to the right back to your brokenness. Part of being a Christian is the mortification of the old lifestyle. All of those little squiggly arrows don't get to come with you. You kill the old so that you can go to the new, which is back to God's design. And that's a good point. See that bottom circle? Some of you Christians in this room, you need to kill the tendency you have to go right back up to your brokenness you used to live in. It's two things. Mortification of the old and aspiration to the new. Aspire to be what God wants you to be now that you have the Spirit. Amen? God's going to change you and make you into who you're supposed to be. Don't go back to the old. So I like the circular nature here. Don't go back to the old. He took you out of brokenness through the gospel and he radically changed your life. There's no going the other way. Pray with me. Heavenly Father.